0: Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. My name is Tyler, I'm your host and narrator. And we are reading The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Chapter 44. The Burning Glass. Oh, and let us remember, let us remember momentarily that Kvothe is a fucking idiot. Just so dumb. No common sense. No sense at all. Just, yeah, let me, let me just. Blindly trust this guy whose pride I just shit all over. Okay, okay. <clears throat> yeah, Very, very silly. Should have definitely just had a friend with him to take him home and say, no, Kvothe, don't go to the archives today. Although he did help Fela. All right, the 44, the burning glass. <clears throat> the fishery was where most of the universities. Works of hands were made. The building held shops for uh, glass blowers, joiners, potters, and glaziers. Oh man, I, I think I've probably been. Anyway, whatever. Um, there was also a full forge and smelt works that would figure prominently in any metallurgist's dream, daydreams. Kilvin's workshop was located in the artificery. Or as it was more commonly called, the fishery. So, is it is it artifice, or artifish? Well, it's not artifish. Art artificery artificery. Man, fuck! Have I been saying this wrong? Anyway, whatever. Artificery, or as it was more commonly called, the fishery. It was big as the inside of a granary, holding at least two dozen thick-timbered work tables, strewn with countless nameless tools and projects in progress. The workshop was the heart of the fishery, and Kilvin was the heart of the workshop. When I arrived, Kilvin was in the process of um, bending a twisted length of iron rod into what I could only assume was a more desirable shape. Seeing me peering in, he left it firmly clamped to the table and walked to meet me, wiping his hands on his shirt. He looked me over critically. "'Are you well, Ilyar Kvoth? I'd gone wandering earlier and found some willow bark to chew. My back still burned and itched, but it was bearable. "'Well enough, Master Kelvin. he nodded. "'Good. Boys your age shouldn't worry over such small things. Soon again you'll be sound as stone.' I was trying to think up a polite response when my eye was drawn to something over our heads.' Kilvin followed my gaze up over his shoulder when he saw what i was looking at a grin split his face gr- uh, a grin split his great bearded face ah he said with a fatherly pride my lovelies high among the rafters of the workshop a half hundred glass spheres hung from chains they were varying sorry they were of varying sizes though none were much larger than a man's head and they were burning Seeing my expression, Kilvan made a gesture. Come, he said, and led me to a narrow stairway made of wrought iron. Reaching the top, we stepped out onto a series of slim iron walkways twenty-five feet above the ground, weaving their way among the thick timbers that supported the roof. After a moment of maneuvering through the maze of timber and iron, we came to the hanging row of glass spheres with fires burning inside them. "'These,' Kilvin gestured, "'are my lamps.' "'It was only then that I realized what they were. "'Some were filled with liquid and wicking, much like ordinary lamps, "'but most of them were utterly unfamiliar. "'One contained nothing but a boiling grey smoke that flickered sporadically. "'Another sphere contained a wick hanging in empty air from a silver wire, "'burning with a motionless white flame despite its apparent lack of fuel.' Two hanging side by side were twins, save that one had a blue flame and the other was a hot forge orange. Some were small as plums, others large as melons. One held what looked like a piece of black coal and a piece of white chalk, and where the two pieces were pressed together an angry red flame burned outward in all directions. Kilvin let me look for a long while before he moved closer. Among the silder that's Sorry, among the sealder, there are legends of ever burning lamps. I believe that such a thing was once within the scope of our craft. Ten years I have been looking. I have made many lamps, some of them very good, very long burning. He looked at me, but none of them ever burning. He walked down the line to point at one of the hanging spheres. Do you know this one, Elior Kivoth? It held nothing but a knob of greenish-grayish wax that was burning with a greenish-grayish tongue of flame. I shook my head. Hmm, You should. White lithium-salt. I thought of it three span before you came to us. It is good so far. Twenty-four days, and I expect many more.' He looked at me. "'Your guessing this thing surprised me, as it took me ten years to think of it. Your second guess, sodium-oil, was not as good. I tried it years ago.' Eleven days. He moved all the way to the end of the row, pointing at the empty sphere with the motionless white flame. Seventy days. He said proudly, I do not hope that this will be the one, for hoping is a foolish game. But if it burns six more days, it will be my best lamp in these ten years. He watched it for a while, his expression oddly soft. "'But I do not hope,' he said resolutely. "'I make new lamps and take my measurements. "'That is the only way to make progress.' "'Wordlessly, he led me back down to the floor of the workshop. "'Once there, he turned to me. "'Hands,' he said in a peremptory way. "'He held out his own huge hands expectantly. "'Not knowing what he wanted, I raised my hands in front of me. "'He took them in his own.' his touch surprisingly gentle. He turned them over, looking at them carefully. You have sealed their hands, he said with a, uh, in a grudging compliment. He held up his own for me to see. They were thick-fingered with wide palms. He made two fists that looked more like mauls than bald hands. I had many years before these hands could learn to be sealed their hands. You are lucky. You will work here. Only by the quizzical tilting of his head did he make the gruff grumble of a statement into an invitation. Oh, yes. I mean, thank you, sir. I'm honored that you would— He cut me off with an impatient gesture. Come with me if you have any thoughts on the ever— Oh, come to me if you ever have any thoughts on the ever-burning lamp. If your head is as clever as your hands look— What might have been a smile was hidden by his thick beard, but a grin shone in his dark eyes as he hesitated teasingly, almost placable. Uh, almost place a, play, God damn it! Almost playfully, if he repeated, holding up a finger, its a tip as large as the ball of a hammer's head, then me and mine will show you things. You need a, you need to figure out who you're going to suck up to. Simmons said, "A master has to sponsor you to Rilard, so you should pick one and stick to him like shit on his shoe." Lovely, Sovoy said dryly. Sofoy, Willem, and Simon uh, were sitting at an out-of-the-way table in the back of anchors, isolated from the felling night crowd that filled the room with a low roar of conversation. My stitches had come out two days earlier, and we were celebrating my first full span in the Arcanum. We were none of us particularly drunk, but then again, none of us were particularly sober either. Our exact positioning between those two points is a matter of pointless conjecture, and I will waste no time on it. <laughs> Except for the paragraph you just said. <laughs> uh, I simply concentrate on being brilliant, Savoy said, then wait for the masters to realize it. How did that work out with Mandrag? Willem said with a rare smile. Sovoy gave Willem a dark look. Mandrag is a horse's ass. That explains why you threatened him with your riding crop, Willem said. I covered my mouth to stifle a laugh. Did you really? They're not telling the whole story, Savoy said, affronted. He passed me over for promotion in favour of another student. He was keeping me back so he could use me as indentured labor rather than raise me to Rilar. And you threatened him with a riding and you threatened him with your riding crop. We had an argument, Savoy said calmly, and I happened to have my crop in my hand. You waved it at him, Willem said. I'd been writing, Sovoy said hotly. If I'd been whoring before class and waved a corset at him, no one would have thought twice about it. There was a moment of silence at our table. I'm thinking twice about it right now, Simmons said before bursting into laughter with Willem. Sovoy fought down a smile as he turned to face me. Sim is right about one thing. You should concentrate your efforts on one subject. Otherwise you'll end up like Monet, The Eternal Illyre. He stood and straightened his clothes. Now, how do I look? Savoy wasn't fashionably dressed in the strictest sense, as he clung to the Modegan styles rather than the local ones. But there was no denying that he quite quite a figure in the muted colors of his fine silks and suede. What does it matter? Willem said. Willem asked. Are you trying to set up a tryst with Sim? Savoy smiled. Unfortunately, I must leave you. I have an engagement with a lady, and I doubt our rounds will bring us to this side of town tonight. You didn't tell us you had a date, Sim protested. We can't play corners with just three. It was something of a concession that Sovoy was here with us at all. He'd sniffed a bit at Will and Sim's choice of taverns. Anchor's was low-class enough that the drinks were cheap, but high-class enough so that you didn't have to worry about someone picking a fight or throwing up on you. I liked it. You are good friends and good company, Savoy said, but none of you are female, nor, with the possible exception of Simon, are you lovely. <laughs> Not sure if that's a compliment. Uh, Savoy winked at him. Honestly, who among you wouldn't throw the others over if there was a lady waiting? We murmured a grudging agreement. Savoy smiled, his teeth were very white and straight. I'll send the girl over with more drinks, he said as he turned to go, to ease the bitter sting of my departure. He's not a bad sort, I mused after he left, for nobility. Willem nodded. It's like he knows he's better than you, but doesn't look down on you for it because he knows it's not your fault. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that's, that's sort of a good-natured type. Um, <clears throat> so, who are you going to cozy up to? Sim asked. Resting his elbows on the table, I'm guessing not him. Or Lauren, I said bitterly. Damn Ambrose, twelve ways. I I would have loved to work in the archives. Brander is out, too, Sim said. If Hem has a grudge, Brander helps him carry it. How about the Chancellor, Willem asked. Linguistics? You already speak Siaru, even if your accent is barbaric. I shook my head. What about Mandrag? I've got lots of experience with chemistry. It'd be a small step into alchemy. Simon laughed. <laughs> Everyone thinks chemi- uh, chemistry and alchemy are so similar, but they're they're really not. They're not even related. They just happen to live in the same house. Willem gave a slow nod. That's a nice way of putting it. Besides, Simon said, Mandrag brought in about twenty new Ilir last term. I heard him complaining about how crowded things were. You've got a long haul if you go through Medica, Willem said. Arul is stubborn as pig iron. There's no bending him. He made a gesture with his hand as if chopping something into sections while he spoke. Six terms Ilir, eight terms Rilar, ten terms Ilthi. Or el Elthi. Elthi? Elthe Elthi. Fuck. That's gotta be in the back, right? God. If one of these is in the back, it's gotta be this one, right? Elthi. Alpha. Okay, it's E-L-apostrophe-T-H-E. Alpha, Which is apparently the highest rank. Um, at least, Simon added, Mola's been relar with him for almost three years now. I tried to think of how I could come up with six years worth of tuition. I might not have the patience for that, I said. Dude, you're still... You're thinking... I get why he's thinking this way he's he's fresh off the streets of Tarbin he got off the streets of Tarbin like we gotta remember like three weeks ago he was an urgent right so like I can forgive him a little of his lack of sense but but really he he's just <sighs> he'll get a better head on his shoulders soon I guess a little more patience once he has employment if he gets employment. (sighs) Okay. Okay, sorry. Uh, Let's see. Uh, I might not have the patience for that, I said. The serving girl appeared with a tray of drinks. Anchor's was only half full, so she'd been running just enough to bring roses to her cheeks. Your gentleman friend paid for this round and the next. I like Savoy more and more, Willem said. However, she held Will's drink out of his reach, he didn't pay for putting his hand on my ass. She looked each of us in the eye. I'll trust the three of you to settle that debt before you leave. Sim stammered an apology. He, he doesn't mean, in his culture, that sort of thing is more common. She rolled her eyes, her expression softening. Well, in this culture, a healthy tip makes a fine apology. She handed Will his drink and turned to leave, resting her empty tray on one hip. We watched her go, each of us thinking our own private thoughts. I noticed he had his rings back, I mentioned eventually. He played a brilliant round of basset last night, Simon said, made six doublings in a row and cracked the bank. To Sovoy, Willem held up his tin mug. May his luck keep him in classes and us in drinks. We toasted and drank, then Willem brought us back to the matter at hand. That leaves you with Kilvin and Elksidal. He held up two fingers. What about Elodin? I interrupted. They both gave me blank looks. What about him? Simmon asked. He seems nice enough, I said. Couldn't I study under him? Simmon burst out laughing. Willem gave a rare grin. What? I demanded. Elodin doesn't teach anything. Simmon explained. Except maybe advanced oddness. He has to teach something, I protested. He's a master, isn't he? Sim is right. Elodin is cramped. Will tapped the side of his head. Cracked, Simmon corrected. Cracked, Will repeated. He does seem a little strange, I said. You do pick things up quick, Willem said dryly. No wonder you made it into the Arcanum at such a tender age. Ease off, Will. He's hardly been here a span. Simmon turned to me. Elodin used to be Chancellor about five years ago. Elodin? I couldn't hide my incredulity. But he's so young and... I trailed off not wanting to say the first word that came to my mind. Crazy. <laughs> Willem finished my sentence. Brilliant. And if not that and not that young if you consider that he was admitted to the university when he was barely fourteen. Simon looked at me. He was a full arcanist by eighteen. Then he stayed around as a giller for a few years. Giller? I interrupted. Gillers are arcanists who stay at the university, Will said. They do a lot of teaching. "'You know Camar in the fishery?' I shook my head. "'Tall, scarred.' Will gestured to one side of his face. "'Only one eye?' I nodded somberly. Camar was hard to miss. The left side of his face was a web of scars that radiated out, leaving bald strips running through his black hair and beard. He wore a patch over the hollow of his left eye. He was a walking object lesson about how dangerous work in the fishery could be. "'I've seen him around. He's a full arcanist.' Will nodded. He's Kilvan's second-in-command. He teaches sigildry to the newer students. Sim cleared his throat. As I was saying, Eludin was the youngest ever admitted, youngest to make Arcanist, and youngest to be Chancellor. Even so, I said, you have to admit he's a little odd to be Chancellor. Not back then, Simmons said soberly. That was before it happened. When nothing more was forthcoming, I prompted. It? Will shrugged. Something. They do not speak on it. They locked him in the crockery until he got most of his marbles back. I don't like thinking about it, Simmons said, shifting uncomfortably in his chair. I mean, a couple students go crazy every term, right? He looked at Willem. Remember Slyth Uh, Slith, Sly... Slyth? what, Patrick... Rothfuss, I have some issues with the names you pick for people. Remember Slith? It's S L Y H T H Slith. Will nodded somberly. It might happen to any of us. There was a moment of silence as the two of them sipped their drinks, not looking at any or anything in particular. I wanted to ask for specifics, but I could tell that it was a touchy subject. Anyway, Sim said in a low voice. I heard they didn't let him out of the crockery. I heard he escaped. No arcanist worth his salt can be kept in a cell, I said. That's not surprising. Have you ever been there? Simmon asked. It's built to keep arcanists locked up. All meshed stone, wards on the doors and windows. He shook his head. I can't imagine how someone could get out, even one of the masters. All this is beside the path, Willem said firmly, bringing us back to the to task. Kilvin has welcomed you to the fishery. Impressing him will be your best chance at making Rillar. He looked back and forth between us. Agreed? Agreed, Simon said. I nodded, but the wheels in my head were spinning. I was thinking about Taberlin the Great, who knew the names of all things. I thought about the stories Scarpy had told back in Tarbine. He hadn't mentioned arcanists. Only namers. And I thought of Elodin, Master Namer and how I might approach him. Chapter 45 Interlude Some Tavern Tale At a gesture from Quoth, Chronicler wiped off the nib of his pen and shook out his hand. Bast gave a great seated stretch, his arms arching over the back of the chair. I'd almost forgotten how quickly it all happened, Quoth mused. Those were probably the first stories anyone ever told about me. "'They're still telling them at the university,' chronicler said. "'I've heard three different versions of the class you taught. "'You're whipping, too. "'Is that when they started calling you Kvoth the Bloodless?' Kvoth nodded, "'Possibly.' "'If we're asking questions, Reshi,' Bast said sheepishly, "'I was wondering why you didn't go looking for Scarpy.' "'What could I have done, Bast? "'Smeared my face with lamp black and staged a daring midnight rescue?' Both gave a brief, humorless laugh. <laughs> They'd taken him in on heresy. All I could do was hope he truly had friends in the church. Both drew a deep breath and sighed, But the simplest reason is the least satisfying one, I suppose. The truth is this: I wasn't living in a story. I don't think I'm understanding you, Reshi, Best said, puzzled. Think of all the stories you've heard, Bast. You have a young boy, the hero. His parents are killed. He sets out for vengeance. What happens next? Bast hesitated, his expression puzzled. Chronicler answered the question instead. He finds help. A clever talking squirrel, an old drunken swordsman, a mad hermit in the woods, that sort of thing. Quoth nodded. Exactly. He finds the mad hermit in the woods, proves himself worthy, and learns the names of all things, just like Taborlin the Great. Then, with these powerful magics at his beck and call, what does he do? Chronicler shrugged. He finds the villains and kill them, and and kills them. Of course, Quoth said grandly, clean, quick, and easy as lying. We know how it ends practically before it starts. That's why stories appeal to us. They give us the clarity and simplicity our real lives lack both leaned forward. If this were some tavern tale, all half-truth and senseless adventure, I would tell you how my time at the university was spent with a purity of dedication. I would learn the ever-changing name of the wind, ride out, and gain my revenge against the Chandrian. Kvothe snapped his fingers sharply. Simple as that. But... While that might make for an entertaining story, it would not be the truth. The truth is this. I had mourned my parents' death for three years, and the pain of it had faded to a dull ache. Quoth made a conciliatory gesture with one hand, and smiled a tight smile. I won't lie to you. There were times late at night when I lay sleepless and desperately alone in my narrow bunk in the mews, times when I was choked with a sorrow so endless and empty that I thought it would smother me. There were times when I would see a mother holding her child, or a father laughing with his son, and anger would flare up in me, hot and furious with the memory of blood and the smell of burning hair. Quoth shrugged, but there was more to my life than revenge. I had very real obstacles to overcome close at hand. My poverty, my low birth, the enemies I made at university were more dangerous to me than any of the Chandrian— he gestured, for Chronicler to pick up his pen. But for all that we did, sorry, but for all that we still see that even the most fanciful stories hold a shred of truth, because I did find something very near to the mad hermit in the woods, Both said. Oh, both smiled. And I was determined to learn the name of the wind. 46. The Ever-Changing Wind Elodin proved a difficult man to find. He had an office in Hollows, but never seemed to use it. When I visited ledgers and lists, I discovered he only taught one class, unlikely maths. However, this was less than helpful in tracking him down, as, according to the ledger, the time of the class was now, and the location was everywhere. <laughs> wow, Okay. <laughs> In the end, I spotted him through sheer luck across a crowded courtyard. He was wearing his black master's robes, which was something of a rarity. I was on my way to the Medica for observation, but decided I'd rather be late for my class than miss the opportunity to speak with him. By the time I struggled through the midday crowd and caught up with him, we were on the northern edge of the university, following a wide dirt road that led into the forest. Master Eludin, I said, pelting up to him, I was hoping I could talk with you. A sad little hope, he said, without breaking stride or looking in my direction. You should aim higher. A young man ought to be a fire with high ambitions. I hope to study naming, then, I said, falling into step beside him. Too high, he said, matter-of-factly. Try again, somewhere in between. Um, the dirt road curved, and trees blocked the site of the university's buildings behind us. I hope you'll accept me as a student, I tried again, and teach me whatever you think is best. Elodin stopped walking abruptly and turned to face me. Fine, he said. Go find me three pine cones. He made a circle with his thumb and finger, this big, without any of the little bits broken off. He sat down right in the middle of the road and made a shoeing motion with his hand. Go on, hurry. I darted off into the surrounding trees. It took me about five minutes to find three pine cones of the appropriate type. By the time I got back to the road, I was disheveled and bramble scratched. Eludin was nowhere to be seen. I looked around stupidly, then cursed, dropping dropped the pine cones and <laughs> dropped the pine cones and took off running, following the road north. I caught up with him fairly quickly as he was just idling along, looking at the trees. So, what did you learn that you want to be left alone? You are quick. He spread his arms dramatically and intoned, "Here endeth the lesson. Here endeth my profound tutelage of Ilyar Kvoth. I sighed. If I left now, I could still catch my class in the Medica, but part of me suspected that this might be a test of some sort. Perhaps Elodin was simply making sure that I was genuinely interested before he accepted me as a student. That is the way it usually goes in stories. Uh, The young man has to prove his dedication to the old hermit in the woods before he's taken under his wing. (laughs) Will you answer a few questions? I asked. Fine. "'he said, holding up his hand with his thumb and forefinger curled in. Three questions if you agree to leave me afterward.' "'I thought for a moment. "'Why don't you want to teach me?' "'Because the Idimuru make exceptionally poor students,' he said brusquely. "'They are fine for rote learning, "'but the study of naming requires a level of dedication "'that ravels such as yourselves rarely possess.' "'My temper flared so hot and quick that I actually felt my skin flush.' It started at my face and burned down my chest and arms. It made the hair on my arms prickle. I took a deep breath. I am sorry that your experience with the rue has left something to be desired, I said carefully. Let me assure you that ye gods, Elidin sighed, disgusted, a bootlicker too. You lack the requisite spine and testicular fortitude to study under me. Hot words boiled up inside me. I fought them down. He was trying to bait me. You aren't telling me the truth, I said. Why don't you want to teach me? For the same reason I don't want a puppy, Elidin shouted, waving his arms in the air like a farmer trying to startle crows out of a field. Because you're too short to be an aimer. Your eyes are too green. You have the wrong number of fingers. Come back when you're taller and you've found a decent pair of eyes. (laughs) We stared at each other for a long while. Finally, he shrugged and started walking again. Fine, I'll show you why. We followed the road north. Elodin strolled along, picking up stones and tossing them into the trees. He jumped to snatch leaves from low-hanging branches, his master's robes billowing ridiculously. At one point he stopped and stood motionless and intent for nearly half an hour, staring at a fern swaying slowly in the wind. But I kept the tip of my tongue firmly between my teeth. I didn't ask, where are we going, or what are you looking at? I knew a hundred stories about boys who squandered questions or wishes by chatting them away. I had two questions left, and I wanted to make them count. Eventually we emerged from the forest, and the road became a path leading up a vast lawn to a huge manor house, bigger than the artificery.
1: It had elegant
0: lines, a red tile roof, high windows, arched doorways, and pillars. There were fountains, flowers, hedges. But something wasn't quite right. The closer we got to the gates, the more I doubted this was some nobleman's estate. Maybe it was something about the design of the gardens, or the fact that the wrought-iron fence surrounding the lawns was nearly ten feet tall and unclimbable to my well-trained thief's eyes. Two serious-eyed men opened the gate, and we continued up the path toward the front doors. Elodin looked at me. Have you heard of Haven yet? I shook my head. It has other names. The Rookery. The Crockery. The University Asylum. It's huge. How? I stopped before asking the question. Uh, Elodin grinned, knowing he'd almost caught me. Jeremy, he called out to the large man who stood at the front door, how many guests do we have today? The desk could give you a count, sir. Take a wild guess, Elodin said. We're all friends here. Three twenty? The man said with a shrug, three fifty? Aladdin rapped on the thick timber door with a knuckle, and the man scrambled to unlock it. How many more could we fit if needed? Aladdin asked. Another hundred fifty. Easy. Jeremy said, tugging the huge door open. More in a pinch, I suppose. See, Kvothe? Aladdin winked at me. We're ready. The entryway was huge, with stained glass windows and vaulted ceilings. The floor was marble polished to a mirror sheen. The place was eerily silent. I couldn't understand it. The Reftview Asylum in Tarbine was only a fraction of the size of this place, and it sounded like a brothel full of angry cats. You could hear it from a mile away over the dim of the city. Over the din of the city, sorry. Aladdin strolled up to a large desk where a young woman stood. Why isn't anyone outside, Emmy? She gave him an uneasy smile. They're too wild today, sir. We think there's a storm coming in. She pulled a ledger book off the shelf. The moon's getting full, too. You know how it gets. Sure do. Ellidan crouched down and began to unlace his shoes. Where did they stash wind this time? She flipped a few pages in the ledger. Second floor, east. 247. Ellerdin stood back up and set his shoes on the desk. Keep an eye on these, would you? She gave him an uncertain smile and nodded. I choked down another mouthful of questions. It seems like the university goes to an awful lot of expense here, I commented. Elodin ignored me, and turned to climb a wide marble staircase in his stocking feet. Then we entered a long white hallway, lined with wooden doors. For the first time I could hear the sounds I had expected in a place like this. Moans, weeping, incessant chattering, screaming, all very faint. Eludin ran for a few steps, then stopped, his stocking feet gliding across the smooth marble floor, his master's robes streaming out behind him. He repeated this, a few quick steps, then a long slide with his arms held out to the sides for balance. I continued to pace along beside him. I'd think the masters would find other more academic uses for the university's funds. Eludin didn't look at me. step, 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 step. You're trying to get me to answer questions you're not asking. Slide. It's not going to work. You're trying to trick me into asking questions, I pointed out. It seems only fair. Step, 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 slide. So why the hell are you bothering with me anyway, Eligen asked. Kilvin likes you well enough. Why not hitch your star to his wagon? I think you know things I can't learn anywhere else. Things like what? "'Things I've wanted to know since I first saw someone call the wind.' "'Name of the wind, was it?' Elodin raised his eyebrows. "'Step, step, 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 step. That's tricky. Slide. "'What thinks you, what makes you think I know anything about calling the wind?' "'Process of elimination,' I said. "'None of the other masters do that sort of thing, so it must be your bailiwick. "'By your logic, I should also be in charge of Solennade dances, needlework, and horse thieving.' <laughs> He's got a point. Uh, we came to the end of the hall, mid-slide. Elledin nearly bowled over a huge, broad-shouldered man carrying a hardback. Beg your pardon, sir, he said, though it obviously wasn't his fault. Timothy, Elodin pointed a long finger at him. Come with us. Elodin led the way through several shorter hallways, eventually coming to a heavy wooden door with a sliding panel at eye level. Elodin opened it and peered through. How's he been? "'Quiet,' the hulking man said. "'I don't think he's slept much.' Elodin tried the latch, then turned to the broad-shouldered man, his face going grim. "'You locked him in?' The man stood a full head taller than Elodin and probably weighed twice as much, but the blood drained from his face as the shoeless master glared at him. "'Not me, Master Elodin. It's—' Elodin cut him off with a sharp gesture. "'Unlock it!' Timothy fumbled with a ring of keys. Elodin continued to stare him down. Alder Wynne is not to be confined. He may come and go as he pleases. Nothing is to be put in his food unless he specifically asks for it. I am holding you responsible for this, Timothy Jenneroy. Elodin poked him in the chest with a long finger. If I found out that Wynne has been sedated or restrained, I'll ride you naked through the streets of Imre like a little pink pony. He glared. Go. The fellow left as quickly as he could manage without actually breaking into a run. Elodin turned to me. You can come in, but don't make any noises or sudden movements. Don't talk unless he talks to you. If you do talk, keep your voice low, understand? I nodded, and he opened the the door. The room wasn't what I expected. Tall windows let the daylight in, revealing a sizable bed and a table with chairs. The walls, ceiling, and floor were all padded with thick white cloth, muffling even the faint noises from the hallway. "'The blankets had been pulled off the bed, "'and a thin man of about thirty was bundled up in them, "'huddled against the wall. "'Eluden closed the door, and the mousy man flinched a little. Wynne, he said softly, moving closer. "'What happened?' "'Alder Wynne looked up owlishly. "'A thin stick of a man, He was bare- he was bare-chested under the blanket, "'his hair in wild disarray, his eyes round and wide. "'He spoke softly, his voice cracking a little.' I was fine, I was doing fine, but all the people talking, dogs, cobblestones, I just can't be around all that right now. Wynne pressed himself against the wall, and the blanket fell off his bony shoulder. I was startled to see a lead gilder around his neck. This man was a full-fledged arcanist. Elodin nodded. Why are you on the floor? Wynne... Looked over at the bed, panic in his eyes. A fall, he said softly, his voice somewhere between horror and embarrassment. And there are springs and slats, nails. How are you now? Aladdin asked gently. Would you like to come back with me? No. Wynne gave a hopeless, despairing cry, screwing his eyes closed and pulling the blanket closer around himself. His thin, reedy voice made his plea more heart-wrenching than if he'd howled it. "'That's fine. You can stay,' Elodin said softly. "'I'll be back to visit.' Wynne opened his eyes at this, looking agitated. "'Don't bring thunder,' he said urgently. He reached out one thin hand out of his blanket and clutched at Elodin's shirt.' But I do need a cat whistle and, and blue-down, and bones, too. His tone was urgent. And tent bones. I'll bring them, Elodin reassured him, gesturing for me to back out of the room. I did. Elodin closed the door behind us, his expression grim. Wynne knew what he was getting into when he became my giller. He turned and began to walk down the hall. You don't. You don't know anything about the university about the risks involved you think this is a place uh, you think this place is a fairyland a playground it's not that's right i snapped it's a playground and all the other children are jealous because i got to play get whipped bloody and banned from the archives and they didn't elodin stopped walking and turned to look at me fine prove me wrong prove that you've thought this through why does a university with under 1,500 students need an asylum the size of the royal palace? My mind raced. My mind raced. Most students are from well-to-do families, I said. They've led easy lives when forced to— Wrong, Eldin said dismissively, turning to walk down the hall. It is because of what we study, because of the way we train our minds to move so ciphering and grammar make people crazy i said taking care to fa- phrase it as a statement elodin stopped walking and wrenched open the nearest door panicked screaming burst into the hallway in me they're in me they're in me they're in me through the the door i could uh, through the open door i could see a young man thrashing against the leather restraints that bound him to the bed at the wrist waist neck and ankle and ankle "'Trigonometry and diagrammed logic don't do this,' Aladin said, looking me in the eye. "'They're in me! They're in me! They're in!' "'The screaming continued in an unbroken chant like the endless, mindless barking of a dog at night. "'They're in me! They're in me! They're—' Allodin closed the door, and I could still hear the screaming faintly through the thick door. "'The near silence—' Oh, "'Though I could still hear the screaming faintly through the thick door, the silence was stunning.' Do you know why they call this place the Rookery? Elodin asked. I shook my head. Because it's where you go if you're a raven. (laughs) As in raving. Um, He smiled a wide smile. He laughed a terrible laugh. Elodin led me through a long series of hallways to a different wing of the crockery. Finally, we turned a corner and I saw something new. A door made entirely of copper. Elodin took a key from his pocket and unlocked it. "'I like to stop in when I'm back in the neighborhood,' he said casually as he opened the door. "'Check my mail. What are the plants and such?' He pulled off one of his socks, tied a knot in it, and used it to wedge the door open. "'It's a nice place to visit, but, you know,' he tugged on the door, making sure it wouldn't swing closed. "'Not again.' "'The first thing I noticed... About the room was something strange about the air. At first I thought it might be soundproofed, like alder winds, but looking around I saw the walls and ceilings were bare gray stone. Next I thought the air might be stale, except when I drew a breath I smelled lavender and fresh linen. It was almost like there was a pressure on my ears, as if I were deep underwater, except of course I wasn't. I waved a hand in front of me, almost expecting the air to feel different. Thicker, it didn't. Pretty irritating, huh? I turned around to see Elodin watching me. I'm surprised you noticed, actually. Not many do. The room was a definite step above Alder winds It had a four-post bed with curtains, an overstuffed couch, an empty bookcase, a large table with several chairs. Most notable, there were the huge windows looking out over the lawns and gardens. I could see a balcony outside, but there didn't seem to be any way to get to it. Watch this, Elodin said. He picked up one of the high-backed wooden chairs, lifted it with both hands, spun spun in a circle, and flung it hard at the window. I cringed, but instead of a terrible crash, there was just a dull splintering of wood. The chair fell to the floor in a ruined tangle of timber and upholstery. I used to do that for hours, Elodin said, drawing a deep breath. Uh, Looking around... As he drawing a deep breath and looking around the room fondly, good times. I went to look at the windows. They were thicker than usual, but not that thick. They seemed normal except for faint reddish streaks running through them. I glanced at the window frame. It, it was copper too. I looked around the room. I, I looked slowly around at the room, eyeing its bare stone walls, feeling its strangely heavy air. I noticed the door didn't even have a handle on the inside, let alone a lock. Why would anyone go through all the trouble of making a solid copper door? I decided on my second question. How did you get out? Finally, Aladdin said with a tinge of exasperation. He slouched under the couch. You see, once upon a time, Aladdin the Great found himself locked in a high tower. He gestured to the room around us. He had been stripped of his tools, his coin, key, and candle. Furthermore, his cell had no door worth mentioning, no window that could be breached. He made a dismissive gesture at each of these. Uh, Even the name of the wind was hidden from him by the clever machinations of his captors. Elodin got up from the couch and began to pace the room. All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. It was a cell no man had ever escaped. He stopped pacing and held up a finger dramatically. But Aladdin knew the great name. Uh, but Aladdin the Great knew the names of all things, and so all things were his to command. He faced the gray wall be- beside the window. Uh, he said to the stone, Break! And the. Elodin trailed off, his, hel- his head tilting to one side curiously. His eyes narrowed. Sod me, they changed it, he said quietly. To himself. He stepped closer to the wall and lay a hand on it. I let my attention wander. Will and Sim had been right. The man was cracked in the head. What would happen if I ran out of the room, unstuck the door, and slammed it? Would the other masters thank me? Oh, Eldin said suddenly, laughing. <laughs> that was half clever of them. He took two steps back from the wall. Sayer, let's see, Sayer best. hang on. Sayer Basalien. I saw the wall move. It rippled like a hanging rug thumped with a stick. Then it simply fell, like dark water poured from a bucket. Tons of fine gray sand spilled across the floor in a sudden rush, burying Elodin's feet up to his shins. Sunlight and birdsong poured into the room. There... Where there had been a foot of solid grey stone before, there was now a gaping hole big enough to drive a cart through. But the hole wasn't completely clear. Some green material was spread across the opening. It almost looked like a dirty, tangled net, but it was too irregular for netting. It was more like a thick, tattered cobweb. That wasn't there before, Hallidon said apologetically as he pulled his feet free of the gray sand. It was much more dramatic the first time, let me assure you. I simply stood, stunned by what I'd just seen. This wasn't sympathy. This wasn't anything I'd ever seen before. All I could think of was the old line from a hundred half-remembered stories, and Taborlin uh, the Great said to the stone break, and the stone broke. Eludin wrenched off one of the chair's legs and used it to batter at the tangled green web that stretched across the opening. Parts of it broke easily or flaked away. Where it was thicker he used the leg as a lever to bend pieces aside. Where it bent or broke it glimmered bright in the sunlight. More copper, I thought. Veins of copper running through the blocks of stone that made the wall. Elodin dropped the chair leg and ducked through the gap. Through the window I saw him lean against the white stone railing on the balcony. I followed him outside. As soon as I stepped onto the balcony, the air no longer felt strangely heavy and still. Two years, he said, looking out over the gardens, able to see this balcony but not stand on it, able to see the wind but not hear it, not feel it on my face. He swung one leg up over the stone railing, So he was sitting on it, then dropped a few feet to land on the flat piece of roof just underneath. He wandered out across the roof, away from the building. I hopped the rail myself and followed him to the edge of the roof. We were only about twenty feet up, but the gardens and fountains spreading out on all sides made for a spectacular view. Aladdin stood perilously near the edge, his master's robe flapping around him like a dark flag. He looked rather impressive, rather, uh, actually, if you were willing to ignore the fact that he was still only wearing one sock. I went to stand beside him on the edge of the roof. I knew what my third question had to be. What do I have to do, I asked, to study naming under you? He met my eye calmly, appraising me. Jump, he said, jump off this roof. That's when I realized that all um, that all of this had been a test. Ellerdin had been taking my measure ever since we met. He had a grudging respect for my tenacity, and he had been surprised that I noticed something odd about the air in his room. He was on the verge of accepting me as a student, but he needed more, proof of my dedication, a demonstration, a leap of faith. <laughs> as I stood there, a piece of story came to mind. So Taborland fell, but he did not despair. For he knew the name of the wind, and so the wind obeyed him. It cradled and caressed him. It bore him to the ground as gently as a puff of thistledown. It set him on his feet, softly as a mother's kiss. Elodin knew the name of the wind. Still looking him in the eye, I stepped off the edge of the roof. Elidin's expression was marvelous. I have never seen a man so astonished. I spun slightly as I fell, so he stayed in my line of vision. I saw him raise one hand slightly, as if making a belated attempt to grab hold of me. I felt weightless, like I was floating. Then I struck the ground, not gently like a feather settling down, hard, like a brick hitting the cobblestone street. I landed on my back with my left arm beneath me. My vision went dark as the back of my head struck the ground, and all the air was driven from my body. I didn't lose consciousness. I just lay there, breathless and unable to move. I remember thinking, quite earnestly, that I was dead that I was blind. Eventually, my sight returned, leaving me blinking against the sudden brightness of the blue sky. Pain tore through my shoulder, and I tasted blood. I couldn't breathe. I tried to roll off my arm, but my body wouldn't listen to me. I had broken my neck, my back. After a long, terrifying moment, I managed to gasp a shallow breath, then another. I gave a sigh of relief when I realized that I had at least one broken rib in addition to everything else. Oh, sorry, I not when I released... I gave a sigh of relief and realized that I had at least one broken rib in addition to everything else, but I moved my fingers slightly, then my toes. They worked. I hadn't broken my spine. As I lay there, counting my blessings and broken ribs, Elodin stepped into my field of vision. He looked down at me. Congratulations, he said. That was the stupidest thing I have ever seen. His expression was a mix of awe and disbelief. Ever. And that is when I decided to pursue the noble art of artificing. Not that I had a lot of other options. Before helping me limp to the Medica, Elodin made it clear that anyone stupid enough to jump off a roof was too reckless to be allowed to hold a spoon in his presence, let alone study something as profound and volatile as naming. Nevertheless, I wasn't terribly put out by Elodin's refusal. Storybook magic or no, I was not eager to study under a man whose first set of lessons had left me with three broken ribs, a mild concussion, and a dislocated shoulder. Yeah. Uh this is again the uh the whole thing with Kvoth's utter stupidity with some things. Like he's he's very smart, he's very, very intelligent. But he has no idea how to use it. No idea what things are wise. He is very, very bright and very, very unwise. And so it's probably for the best that Elodin does not take him. As a, t- as a student at this present moment. So, anyway. <sighs> Sorry, That's, that was me. No, not you guys. Um, in any case, uh, I will have to end things there today. We do not have time for another chapter. So, all my listeners and friends of the podcast, good night.